Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-353 of the Run Run Live podcast. Today, we're going to have a chat with our old friend, Ann Brennan, about not being able to run anymore. I'm going to do a series on this, so if you've got some major story about a body part replacement or something that has caused a radical shift in your endurance sports, shoot me a note and we'll, we'll chat about it. In section one, I'm going to talk about how to ease into heart rate training and how to make it part of a great 30-day project. In section two, I'm going to talk about a 30-day project I'm on myself called Running Naked. Yeah. And uh, I apologize for the rough edit job on the last show. I got a new laptop and it took me a while to break it in. And it was really struggling with the audio editing. <laughs> but I've got it fixed up. I deinstalled the stupid McAfee software and changed the cache settings and added another 8 mega RAM. So it's, it's working now. So we're all through that. I also finally figured out how to set up a separate podcast feed for the members. And I'm working on it. I still have to figure out how to use the software, but I got the mechanical piece set up. And I have a nice piece on running in the November woods that I'm going to drop for members this week. If you would like to join and help support the podcast, that would be great. And you would have access to the members-only audio like this. Here's a snippet of my November leaves. The sound of the leaves crunching underfoot with each rotation of soul. That sound... That is more than a sound. It is a sound that you feel through your body with each footfall, like biting into a crisp apple and that first sweet chew of skin and flesh. The November leaves have yet to be trodden down by the rains of fall and the snows of winter. They lay heavily on the trails and in the woods like great drifts of snow, piling deep in the hollows, hiding in their multitudes, huddled together from the harrying winds. Yeah, pretty good, right? Yeah, you get those words and 1,300 or so more just like them if you join up as a member. Members only audio. Did you see that big kerfuffle in the news last week around fake news on Facebook? 
Yeah, all the conversation around that. Wasn't I just talking about that? Yeah, there you go. I'm a trendsetter. <laughs> so my running is going great. I had a kind of big build week last week, probably up in the mid 40 miles for uh, distance-wise, for volume-wise, and mostly long zone two trail runs. My base aerobic fitness is spot on. I feel great. Nothing hurts. So what I try to do is take Buddy, the old wonder dog out for the first 20 minute loop and then drop him at the house and I go back out but he's struggling a bit his hips hurt his back legs don't work all the time really well and so he's struggling a bit his running days may be done and he's a pain if he can't run he's a pain he just you may hear him in the background on a lot of this recording wandering around clickety clacking with his nails on the floor and and his uh and his dog tags jingling there's nothing i can do about it he's just nuts so i've had a stretch where i've been haven't been traveling i've been working on my home office and it's great most of the time you can get into a nice rhythm i get up early i do my morning routine it makes the nutrition and the workouts all nice and easy to schedule as well so in the mornings when I get up, I have this routine. I get up, you know, I brush my teeth. I head downstairs to the kitchen. I switch on my computer when I walk by on the way to the kitchen. I put on my coffee and my oatmeal. I put it on to cook. And I settle in at my desk while that cooks. And I try to do five minutes of guided breathing meditation just to set my day off on the right foot. Now, Buddy doesn't like meditation at all. He has hacked my routine. And as soon as I get up, and start moving around or switch on the lights he wants outside and if i let him out he sits in the front yard and barks not at anything just bark 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 like some sort of water torture or dog morse code and this is very early in the morning and it does not ingratiate him with the neighbors it's still dark out no one's up in the neighborhood and it's very difficult for me to meditate with a dog barking like that, even with my noise-canceling headphones. But if I don't let him out, he'll just stand and stare at me while I'm trying to meditate, and then he'll whine a bit to get my attention, and if that doesn't work, he'll just bark right at me. So, And, and this week he broke his lead one day. I went out for my run at lunch, and he met me in the driveway with three feet of lead trailing behind him, and he was quite happy with himself, having had an excellent run about the neighborhood, and apparently he got into something nasty because I woke up to him the next day staring at a big pile of something on the living room carpet. So yeah, Buddy hates meditation. And I suppose I could do my meditation before I come downstairs. Or I could just have him stuffed and mounted. Maybe made into a nice warm pair of gloves. What do you think? On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Heart rate training. Some practical questions. In response to my 30-day challenge from the last episode, one of our Run Run Live members, yeah, she's a full-on member, Judith, sent in a response with a wonderful undertaking of this short 30-day quest, she's learning how to heart rate train, and more specifically, how to train in zone two. A quick review for the uninitiated. Most runners use a five-zone heart rate system. Heart rate is used to accurately measure your effort level, independent of pace, time, and other conditions. 
It is good for us old folk for whom pace is no longer a great indicator of effort level. So why do athletes care about heart rate training? Well, because it builds aerobic fitness. And what is aerobic fitness? It's the physical capacity to race. And consistent aerobic training as part of your base building causes your body to adapt at the cellular level by, among other things, making more mitochondria. But I'll leave the science to someone else. The big point to remember is that you only get these aerobic benefits if you can train in zone 2. You don't get them if you train in zone 3 or above. So if you look at your effort level on a scale of 0 to 5, with 0 being sleeping, I guess, and 1 being walking, and 2 being basically a slow idle, 3 starts to get into tempo, 4 is racing, 5 is all out. On the surface, running in zone 2 sounds like it wouldn't be a challenge. For people who have never practiced heart rate training, running in zone 2 is the biggest challenge. It was for me when I started, and it will be for you. Getting to and maintaining zone 2 is not natural until you practice it. That's why I love Judith's idea. Because... An introduction to the Zone 2 practice is perfect for a 30-day project. So here is the big reveal. Before you understand the practice of heart rate training, when you go out for an easy run, you're typically running in Zone 3. You don't know it, but you are. And before acquiring the discipline of heart rate training, your effort will naturally float up to a Zone 3 before it starts getting uncomfortable. And then you just sort of hang out at that effort level. Not too hard, not too easy. And that's our natural training set point. But that's zone three. And this creates an interesting situation where to run at an easier effort level, you actually need to focus. And it requires practice. And it's harder than you would think. And I'll give you some tips from my experience for your heart rate practice. First... Your body takes time to warm up, and this includes your heart. Don't expect to immediately drop into zone 2 when you start running. And the older you get, the longer it'll take. For example, it may take me 10 to 20 minutes for my body to warm up and find a zone 2 heart rate. My first tip to you, then, is don't look at your watch for the first 10 to 20 minutes. Just run easy. And then, when you're good and warmed up, you can practice getting into zone 2. You might even stop and resettle yourself at the one or two mile mark before you start the practice. Second, getting into and staying in zone two will feel unnatural at first, so don't get frustrated. Treat it as a practice, as a discipline, and as a learning experience. Don't beat yourself up. When your effort level creeps into zone three for no apparent reason, don't get frustrated. Instead, treat it as an opportunity to practice getting back into zone two. Third, try to get into zone two by adjusting your form. Pull up those shoulders, have a straight head with a loose neck, push the hips forward, run with your feet underneath you, hands high and loose, you know the drill. Practice your form, and that will bring your heart rate down sometimes. Next, once you have your form nice and clean, try to relax into that form. 
Let all the tension drain out of your head and face and shoulders and arms. Unclench your fists. Shake out your hands if you have to. Smile a little. Focus on your breathing. Take nice big breaths in through your nose, out through your mouth. And use your lungs and your diaphragm. Feel the rhythm of your breathing. So you checked off your form. You're relaxed. You're breathing nicely. Next, number five, focus on your cadence. Zone two running requires quick, light, easy cadence. So picture your feet hitting the ground lightly and quickly. Pat, pat, pat. Look at your watch and time your left or your right foot. Time that foot strike for 10 seconds. And multiply that number by six. And it should be within three beats of 80. And if it is too low, if it's in the 70s, focus on getting that quick light turnover up. And finally, you bring all this together. The form, the cadence, the breathing, and you try to integrate all of this into your practice. And now, when you're out running, you'll be able to walk down this checklist of form, relaxation, cadence, and you'll notice that your heart rate will start adjusting faster until you get to the point where you can almost instantaneously control your heart rate. And that is one of the indicators of great aerobic conditioning, when you can recover your heart rate quickly in a workout. It will be hard to master. It will take a couple weeks to turn the corner. It requires practice. That is what makes it a great 30-day project. If you're serious about heart rate training, you'll need to practice it. Heart rate sessions tend to be longer as well. Most of my aerobic training runs are between one and two hours long. With heart rate training, you train by time, not by pace or distance. I only have time and heart rate zone on my Garmin display, and that keeps me from worrying about my pace. And after a couple of weeks of practice, you should find that you are running at the same pace that you used to train at in Zone 3, but now you're doing it comfortably in Zone 2. And this means you're burning less energy. You're going faster and farther with less effort. That's the payoff. And this capacity comes in quite handy in a race. And now for today's featured interview. I don't know. I don't think iPhones are designed for guys with my big old beefy fingers. No, and I think the older I get, the less it seems to be designed for me. Right, and people make fun of us because we send crazy messages. That's because we can't see what's on the screen, so we have no idea what we're (laughs) we're sending. Well, that and half the time I'm I'm talking to it, and then I don't (laughs) I had a conference a couple weeks ago. He sent me a a message that said, sorry to have kissed you today. So... (laughs) That's okay. I didn't mind it. It was quite nice. <laughs> I said, I think, yeah, I think I would have noticed that. Yeah. Yeah. No, you definitely have to proofread. I do that too often. I'll be driving down the road and say, send the message to, and then I say it and then don't look at it. And it sends something very embarrassing. You can tell when people are doing text to, uh, or voice to text because there's a lot of homophone words there's- that kind of sound like what you're trying to say. Exactly. And actually, when I hear them, and now I look at the dictation, I'll see a lot of ums in them. So 
Hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good. Exactly. Doesn't it? So, we go way back centuries, probably, right? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, from the old days, right? Yeah, I figured it out. It was 2008 I started doing this, and we were all Twitter buddies back in 2008. So, I actually thought I had been doing it since 2007. And the way I figured it out was I put on a t shirt, and uh, it happened to be from that race I was training for in 2000, and it said 2008 on it. So I said, Oh, I still have the race shirt, so I know when. So that's how we define everything in our lives, right? What was the big race that you were running that year? Or what was the big event that you remember from that year? And these are sort of the touch points or the milestones in an endurance athlete's life, right? Yeah, it's sort of weird because you have the so-and-so's wedding, so-and-so's birth, so-and-so's death. Big event. Right. This is what exactly. I did. That's how you remember race. it. Exactly. Well, and for us, yeah, for, I mean, for runners, gosh, it's almost always a race. It's almost always, oh, yeah, that was the year I did, you know, Boston for the first time. Not for me, but for you. But Or that was the year I did Ironman. Whatever it was, it's the, the one that sticks out. So, right. So why don't you give us the 200 words on where you are and what you're doing these days, then? Well, I'm not running, which is uh, hard to say. So that sucks. But I am biking, and I actually today was day 182 of a biking streak that I started with my son. So that's been nice. And I just published Anne's running, uh, what is it, a running commentary on uh, Kindle. And that was thanks to you. Thank you for making me do that, pushing me to do that. Otherwise, I am working in social media, which is fun. Started my own business and keeping busy that way. But I definitely miss running. What do you find are the symptoms of missing running? Believe it or not, I was never a heavy smoker, but I used to smoke in college, smoke cigarettes, right? Uh-huh. And not a lot, but enough to have that addictive thing, right? So when every once in a while right. you'll still wake up or you'll see somebody smoking a cigarette and you go, oh, and you'll reach around for your pack of cigarettes, right? Right. It's just right. sort of well, ha- yeah, you have so- that mental mental twitch. Exactly. So I watched Jeff run Beach to Battleship or Ironman North Carolina, and I thought, oh, maybe I'll sign up for that next year. And I went, well, I can't do that because I can't run. So I think that happens more often than anything else. It's like, oh, I want to run that. And then I realize, no, no, I can't run that at all. And I really can't run at all. But I just keep saying to me, you'll run again. And I know, I've talked to enough doctors, and I know that really, even if I could run again, there there's too much damage that can be done from it at this point. So that's hard. When I see a race or I have friends who sign up for a race and know I can't do it with them. So it's something in your back, right? It's in my lower back and it's called spondylolisthesis and it's two on either side of my spine, the little spiky things that hold your spine together. They broke on both sides and so um, of one vertebrae and so it slipped quite a bit and it's basically dangling there and it's the very last vertebrae so any wrong movement and it it does me in and any pounding does me in so even I go to if you're at a crosswalk and you want to be polite because traffic is stopped for you I can't run across the street I have to walk across the street because running across the street could mean I'm not going to pull my pants up tomorrow morning I have to get help so you know I have to be really careful that's been the so how did it uh, manifest did you just wake up one day and go crap, I can't move? No, I, you know, I had some pain last fall, uh, October and November. I had some pain actually mostly in my hip. I didn't even think it was my back. It was in my hip. I, I kept noticing this pain. And then I ran a NCR marathon and I was at mile eight. Everything was going wonderfully. I was right on target for about a 410 marathon. And I literally heard kafunk in my back. And I thought, oh no. But even then I was like, I'm sure I'm fine. <laughs> I'm sure I'm fine. And I finished running it by keeping, I kept digging my fingers into my back, trying to make the swelling go down, thinking, oh, I'm going to trigger something that's going to let go. And it didn't. And I, even so, even when I finished, I thought, oh, 
I'll be fine. Two weeks from now, I'll run again. I'll just take some time off. But no, right. it just got worse and worse. So like I said, it was hard. I would wake up in the middle of the night and have to wake Blaze up to help me get up out of the bed so I could go to the bathroom. You know, one of the kids to hand me my pants in the morning so I could figure out how to get them on. It had gotten that bad. But I guess April, I started biking. And that seems to help. That seems to help a lot. Just being able to be active has helped. So at least I don't miss it as far as I'm not cranky like I would be if I wasn't doing anything. And you know, you know, we've had this conversation before where the running is part of your mental life as much as anything, right? It's part of your sort of medication, your routine, but it's also part, you being a creative, it's also part of your creativity, your creative life, right? Exactly. So when you you lose that chunk of it as well. Did you go through the classic phases of uh, loss? Yeah, it was. And and actually, I probably still do. I think one of the ones that surprises me is how angry I'll get when I realize that I can't do something. One of the things that I do with social media is I help people with their events. And so I went to an event a couple of weeks ago. That was a great big workout. It was a charity workout. And I was watching people do box jumps, or I was watching people put their hands on the ground and walk their feet up the wall. And, and these things that I thought, I am never going to be able to do that. These things I could do in the past that I can't do. So I know I think I'm going through a lot of that and not believing that I'm denial. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of that classic stage of grief having lost running. So plus, I think about it, you think I write Anne's running commentary. My book is a running commentary. It's all about running. My whole life revolves around it. So not having it, you kind of have to redefine yourself. Who am I? And that's hard. That's not yeah, something well, that was easy to answer. Yeah. And what I found when I was going through those periods, I had some sort of long-term injury and I was still having to execute on the podcast and the blog and that sort of thing is I just felt like a total fraud. <laughs> and having to wake up and do that is like, I shouldn't right. be doing this because I'm a fraud. You got to well, find some strategies. What are some strategies to let yourself down easily or to transition into a different season of your life? Because it is, it's no worse or no, no better. It's just a different season, right? Yeah. And I guess that so I think there's, the one you talked about was replacement strategy, right? Which is get on the bike right, or do whatever. Exactly. But what else? What else has been useful for you? redefining myself, trying to figure out that, okay, so it's not just, I'm not just a runner. Even now that I'm cycling, I'm not just a cyclist. I'm a mom. I'm a social media factotum. And I'm a, I just did this whole rocket thing so that I'm a person who can go out there and speak on different subjects. And it doesn't always have to be running. And then I do a lot of volunteering. I volunteer. uh, I'm on the social committee for our run club, which is interesting because I go to all these running events now. And I'm still surrounded by them. Or I volunteer at races. So that's been a, a thing is to try to find who else I am besides just a runner. Plus, people keep, I have to yeah. be honest, people look at me and they go, are you still running? And I'm like, well, clearly, <laughs> I look different these days because you gain weight yeah. when you're not running. And also just not being a defeatist, not giving up. So today actually was the first day I went back to the gym and I lifted weights. And it was the first time I've done that since I've been injured. So I decided I don't know what I can do. I can't do a whole lot, but I can do something. And it's better than nothing. Right. I think it's tough because it's such a keystone habit, right? And that's what I always say in the positive side. If you see people who get, who turn their lives around, right? They transform their lives by running a marathon or doing a triathlon or whatever. So it has this transformational power. It's this keystone habit. And then when you lose that, it's almost like pulling the keystone out of a wall where the other stuff starts to fall in on you that running was supporting before, right? So so you have to sort of find a, find a different structure. 
Exactly. And like you said, with the creativity, it is just not the same. I have yet to find something that makes my brain be as creative as running dead. I can go for a walk. I can go for a bike ride. But you know, no matter what I do, the creativity doesn't come quite as easily as when I was running. And I don't know why. I haven't pinpointed the way to find that creativity again. So I miss that. I miss that a lot. But you'll find it, right? And I guess you got to say, what's the opportunity, right? And the opportunity is you right. get to do something new. Right, exactly. Right, so exactly. there's another exercise or phase of self-awareness that you get to go through. And you can see that as right. a gift, potentially. Exactly. I've found in my life, there's very few challenges that don't eventually circle back around to self-awareness. And I right. can't claim to be uh, totally self-aware, but I can claim to work on it every day, right? Or at well, least realize yeah, and it. Right? And I don't know whether that comes because we were runners you know, originally and we learned to do that. Or because I know I went to this rocket launch with NASA, which was the coolest opportunity. But one of the things that tickled me about it is that suddenly I realized when you go there, my whole life I've been very laid back. I'm very laid back. If something doesn't go right, I'm like, it'll be fine. Just put it out there. It'll be fine. It'll work out. But it was interesting to watch the difference between that and what they do with these rockets and how I was telling Blaze, they got to four, they had a list that was 426 steps long. And each one, they would say, are you ready? You know, can we go? And they'd say, oh, go, you know? Yeah. You watch Apollo 13, yeah. it's yeah. about 10 steps. But it's 426 steps. Well, they got to 424, and we're listening to the control room. They get to 424, and which is just two minutes from launch. And they say, is this a go? And the person on the other end goes, hold. And so they had to add five minutes to the timer, which was really interesting to me that they were ready to go. They were ready to say, okay, that's it. We're going to scrub it. We're not going to do it. And I thought, how many times do I really not go for the perfect when I could? So that was one of those things that I went into it and I thought I had to start thinking about myself. So, you know, how many times should I go for a little more perfect than what I'm doing? Anyway, that does make you more self-aware. Once you've been a runner, once you've started thinking about those things, it does make you find that in other areas of your life. That was one of them this yeah. week that I thought about. Yeah, and I think a lot of times we'll look at things like that and we'll go, well, my personality type is not that I would be able to put together or walk through a 400 and whatever point checklist. That's not my strength. And one reaction to that would be, well, you got to change yourself to get that strength. But another right. reaction is, okay, I'm never going to have that strength. So I need to surround myself with systems and people to address that. Right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. So I think actually Blaze is really my, he, he does that for me. Yeah, I can, you know, I can see that. Go. I can definitely see that. Yeah. Yeah. When Little Blaze was try was applying to the Naval Academy in West Point, I remember we were going through his applications and he'd say, What do you think of my essay? And I'd say, I think it's great. Go ahead and send it. But Big Blaze would look at it and he's like, Wait, 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 let's refine it. And three weeks later they're still refining it and they're still showing it to me and every time they show it to me I'd say, Go ahead and send it. So yeah. that's their thing now, they'll say, Oh, mom just says send it. <laughs> So I think actually so, that's what kept me from writing the book for so long, because I was afraid that I would just say send it instead of making yeah, sure it was good. That's something that I think everybody has a little bit of, and that's that sort of that last step fear of perfection, right? The, the inability right. to submit an 85% right thing. And you just have to get around that by saying, okay, I'm going to commit to fail this first time, right? So when I run right. my first marathon, I'm going to commit to fail. <laughs> I'm not going to try to fail, but that's one of the real 
positive outcomes would be a failure. And it was for me, right? right. And the same with a, with doing a right. book. You say this first time, you start loading pressure on, this is going to be New York Times bestseller. It's going to make a $30,000 a month. It's blah, right. blah, blah. As soon as you start doing that, then you go, oh, shit, I can't do this. It's too big. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You have to start yeah. small. But it is funny because you do do that. You get yourself to a point. I, I actually think those first marathons are so great because no matter what you win, you either have a great marathon or you have right. not a great marathon, but you win because you went out for it. You tried, right? right? And right. I look at and, that last yeah, but marathon I, I, find, I did and I want to just, what were you going to say? No, no, I'm just saying that I find myself pulling back from things in not necessarily endurance athletics. I'm kind of over that. I'll do any crazy old thing, right? <laughs> right, exactly. But pulling back exactly. from things because of the fear of failure, right? And then I'll catch myself going, no, 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 you, that's what you want to do. Yes, exactly. Which is actually, you know, when I started this business, Blaze kept saying, start the business, start the business. And I kept saying to him, I don't know, sweetie. I just don't, you know, what if I do it and nobody comes? I get no clients. And he's like, then nobody comes and you get no clients. What's the worst that's going to happen? And so I did. It's actually, I got clients the first day I went out, which was crazy to me. But I had to take that risk. I had to be willing to take that risk. And it's not always an easy one to do. Yeah. So I'm glad I, glad yep, I did it. Yep, 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 yep. <laughs> Yep, I so, have two of those things. But, and the other, work, I'll find something else. Yeah, and the other one I struggle Another. from, I don't know I don't know how we got down this rat hole, but is the shiny object syndrome, where I'll do 40% uh-huh. of something and then, then get tired of it and move on to the next thing. And I think a lot of that is fear-based, right? Because when you yeah. start getting close to having something, then it gets real, right. and then you get afraid, right? Yeah. What is that quote? Our, our biggest fear is not that we'll fail, but that we'll succeed beyond our wildest dreams. So, yeah, as you, things start getting better, you're like, uh-oh, <laughs> you know, what, is this, what does this mean? Where is it going to take me? So, the fear so, of that next- so tell me a little bit about your uh, book process and uh, how that all went for you. So I, I did a few things. I actually took books. Well, it goes back to what we were talking about, actually. So I did a few things. I, I found my favorite posts that I have ever done. And I went through and I pulled those out. And then I went through and I looked at the most shared posts that I wrote. And then I had to rewrite them about a hundred times to make sure that they were what I wanted. But what surprised me is actually exactly that. The ones that were my favorite were the ones that I worked on the hardest. And the ones that were other people's favorites were generally the ones that I said, oh my gosh, I've just got to get it out there. This is due. I post on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and I haven't posted today. It's got to go up. And those are the ones that I leave and I think, oh, this one really is just either too raw or just telling too much. And those are the ones that people like the most. When I put them in, they're the ones people have written me since and said, oh, I'm so glad you included that. Yeah, I'm so glad you included that one. And it's the one that I had the most doubts about. So whether it was that I was talking about shame or whether I was talking about depression, the things that were most raw were the ones that people liked the most, and that's why I put them in the book. So who'd you write, was, who'd you write this for? I it. It wasn't a hard. Who'd I write it for? Who'd you, who, Gosh, yeah, it, who'd you write this for instead of yourself? I think any like runner. The, who, I think the who runner, can benefit from this? I think any runner. I think that especially the runner who doesn't think of themselves as a, self as a runner, the one who says, I run, but I don't run fast. I run, but I'm not going to qualify for Boston. But at the same time, the people who I talk to a lot are the Boston qualifiers, people like you and and a run blogger and those guys who have read it and gone, oh, yeah, I can relate to that. Even though they're running a lot faster than I am, they're getting it because we're all in the same boat when it comes down to it. So I think just about anybody who has run can get it. Yeah, those themes are universal. Right. 
whether you're fast or you're slow, whether you're at the very back of the pack or the very front of the pack, I think people have all felt those fears and the, that you get that you're just not going to be good enough or you're going to fail at it or you're just... Or the elations, the one where I wrote about how perfectly that beach to battleship race went. We've all had those racers where we're like, oh my God, how did that happen? <laughs> and it's nice when you read it to be able to reflect back on your own and go, yes, I remember when I did something like that. So that's what I'm hoping people get out of it, yeah. that they read it and it makes them think about their lives and what they've accomplished and what they need to accomplish. Whether it's not beating yourself up because you're feeling fat today or whether it's making yourself be more consistent because you see that it was consistency that pushed me to be you know, the best triathlete I could be at the time. I think there's a lot of lessons in there. So. It's called what? A What's running the title commentary. and where did they find it? Yep, it's a okay. running commentary and it's only on Kindle, but you can get Kindle for your phone and you can get it for your iPad. So even if you don't have a Kindle, you can still get this or you can get it for your computer. Yeah, you and know what's funny? You I get, get a it lot. for free, Chris, with Prime. <laughs> with Prime? Really? Yeah, yeah with I have Prime. Prime. I don't know free. why, but I do. Yeah. yeah. Yep. <laughs> Everybody wants to me to do free. everything. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, see, you broke my train of thought there, Ann. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I don't know where I was going now. Oh, I was going to say that I get a lot of people call, sending me emails saying they want a hard copy of uh, the one of my books that I did on Kindle. Yeah. It's more of a how-to book. So, have you book. done a hard copy and, yet? And I, Sure, yeah. My first book, same sort of thing, Collected Stories, I did it as a hard copy. And basically the difference is it's an extra five, six hundred bucks to do it as a hard copy on Amazon. Right. But people still want, especially people um from my generation still want that right. those dead yeah, trees. I've you know? a few of those requests too. And I haven't gone there yet, but I am wondering about it. It is yeah. really funny that yeah. it goes in, in fits and spurts. I'll watch it go up on the charts. I'll watch it go up. And then if I don't talk about it for a few days, it goes right back down. But as soon as I talk about it, it goes up again. So it's interesting to watch. It's just fun. And just knowing I've done it, I think that's a, the biggest thing for me is knowing that I took the risk and put it out there. It's, again, putting my thoughts out there and going, oh, I hope people like it a little bit. Or at least I hope they yeah. don't hate it and throw yeah. eggs at me. <laughs> so. Yeah, and that's so, the hardest So thing. tell me about this rocket launch. What the heck was that? Oh, this is the craziest thing. So I have a friend um, that she lives down in uh, Virginia. She sent me an email and said, you should apply for this NASA social. And I thought, I know nothing. I'm not an engineer. I don't know a whole lot about space. I go to the Air and Space Museum all the time because of my kids, but I don't know a whole lot about them. I like the countdown. I like the big boom You know that makes when it goes up. I think it's fun. But I thought, you know, I'll apply. And the truth is, I applied kind of half-heartedly. I was on my bike, on the stationary bike in the basement, and I applied on my phone. And when it said, give us the short answer as to why we should pick you, I said, well, because I have two boys, which means I must like rockets. And so when they picked me, it was a shock. And I thought, oh, I'm doing this for my boys. Then I got there. My husband said, Ann, I think you're more excited about this rocket launch than you were our wedding. And I said, well, I think I, I am. <laughs> like, this is the coolest thing I've ever done. Because you're sitting here yeah. watching this amazing, it was so amazing. And then you're watching the people who were involved in it. I actually just wrote a piece this morning about it because they're all so excited. It's like watching kids on Christmas morning, except for these are grown men and women who have worked for years on a single project, and they're all so very excited about it. So watching the whole thing from that first press conference that you get to go to and then going out and getting to see the rocket itself, which we got very, very close. We were 800 feet from the rocket, so it was amazing to see it ahead of time. And we went into the, what do you call it, the horizontal integration facility, so where they put it together, and they told us a lot about that. But we got a lot of inside access to it. 
And that was really, really cool. But then afterwards, watching both the elation and then the come down where they went, oh, God, now I'm really exhausted. <laughs> After all yeah. these years, I'm really exhausted. It was really amazing to be a part of it. And then just like with running, Chris, it's the same thing. You know, you go to these runs and you meet people across the country, across the world, and you suddenly have something that you really can relate to because you're all there and you're all excited. And you make these friendships that you wouldn't otherwise make just by putting yourself out there. Right. It was fun to watch that group of people who just bonded because we had the shared experience. So it's it's a new window into a new, into a new community. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it did again, make me go, well, maybe I am more than just a runner. Maybe there is more to me than just being a runner. That was fun to to see what else there is about me that I can do out there. But yeah, I think I actually, one of the things we're supposed to do as, as people with um, NASA social is to say to other people, apply for it, you know, look online, look it up. And for everybody, if, if you have any interest in it, it's great for teachers and doctors. And they had a person from NASCAR, which was really funny, but they had all kinds of people there. They had a makerspace person who works with children in the makerspace community. So there's a lot of people who could benefit from it, and it's just really cool, the stuff you can see and find out that our space program actually still exists because I don't think I knew how much it existed. So That's pretty cool. It's, that sounds pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, it was, it was really cool. It was really, really cool. I liked having so many people following me at home and, and not just people who read my blog and follow me on Twitter, but my brother, who I don't see a whole lot, and he followed every single thing. Every time I put something up, he was commenting on it. And I think he was just as excited about, about it as I was just because I was there. And, you know, it brought it to life for him to see that this was happening. It was an incredible so experience. Maybe I would, um, a, definitely do it again. Maybe this will uh, kickstart a new obsession for you. It'd be like uh, yeah. your new uh, model train. Yeah. Exactly. Actually, I'm going to do another plug if you don't mind. So I came home and Zany, my youngest, he's 10, was so excited about it. He's now built a website. It's called Zane Space News. And he is every day putting up something new about space because he's so excited <laughs> because I was so excited. So it's really, really sweet. And he's having a great time doing it. And every time somebody leaves a comment, he says, Mom, I got a new comment. <laughs> yeah. 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 So that's really sweet. Maybe That's it's awesome. going to create an obsession somewhere, either in me or in him. We'll see. So. Yeah, ripples, ripples in the pond, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's right. nice well, when you, well, you find something new. Going to let you get back to your busy day because it does sound like okay. you have a busy day. I and do. Uh, Got a lot. What's the, the Venn diagram overlap in all these things? What's the common thread? What's the golden thread um, that you can follow forward into the future from this stuff? Oh, that's a really good question. I think it's given me, I was going to say it's given me confidence. What it's proven to me is the confidence I have in so many different areas of my life. Because I was saying, what am I without being a runner? And now I'm saying, oh, it's this confidence that I take through everything that I do that makes everything I do more fun. Being confident enough to think, yeah, I can go with these guys at NASA and talk about this in a way that makes sense. All of that that runs through, or I can bike 183 days, knowing that I have that confidence makes everything else a lot easier and it makes everything else a lot more fun. So I think that's it. It's confidence that goes through all those diagrams. So yeah, it's just yeah. a whole new we, life. Yeah, we got to be careful when we uh, get so thoroughly involved in any one activity that we close off the rest of the world. We got to remember how abundant the world is and how many different circles we could join, right? 
Right. Exactly. Exactly. And you do that well. You got right. you you do between work and other stuff. You do it well. So yep. Well, Chris, thank you yeah. for having me yeah. again. This is fun. Yeah. Some days better than others. <laughs> <laughs> I know. All right. Well, it's always you. a pleasure to talk right. to you. Yeah. It's always a pleasure yep. to talk to you. We'll see you. Bye. All right. You take care. Bye bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Running naked. With a recent change in my telephone hardware and stepping back from the general noise of the media world, I have taken to running naked. Not, I assure you, naked in the physical sense. No, I still go about my runs fully clothed. But naked in the audio and psychological sense, I am running unhindered by music, podcasts, and telephone, and it has been a bit of a reawakening. It is a curious thing. At first, it bothers you, like you're forgetting something. You pause before heading out the door, and you look around. You wonder, what is it that I'm missing? And then you remember, nothing is missing, but everything is absent. I'm not some Luddite old guy. Well, I'm not a Luddite. (laughs) These were the folks in England that went about smashing the machines in the early Industrial Revolution because they thought those infernal looms and engines and presses, they were going to take over, and they were sure the machines were going to throw humanity out. Does that sound familiar to you? Well, I'm not smashing any machines. I have a full house full of electronics My home office looks like the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. I have been running with all forms of audio since it became possible. I remember wearing those big FM radio headphones on my long runs back in the 90s. They looked like something you'd wear to land jets on an aircraft carrier. The long antenna would get fouled in low branches, and I could never get a good signal. I also ran with the original Sony Walkman that played cassette tapes. Yeah. On long runs, I'd stuff three or four books on tape cassettes into my shorts, and I'd change them out on the fly. And I did try the original Discman, too, that played CDs, but it it just couldn't take the jostling. You couldn't do that. Uh, Mostly, I'd just get the small, cheap FM receivers, the little sports radios that clipped on my belt, with the understanding that I would sweat them to death every three months or so. But everything changed. With the invention of the iPod. I got my first iPod in, I don't know, 2004, 2005, specifically for marathon training runs, my long runs, and I uploaded all my CDs and I began listening to music, but I quickly grew bored with the music and I discovered this new thing that was on offer, a sort of amateur radio thing where people just talked about how to do stuff. Yep, you got it. I discovered podcasts, and they were the perfect thing for my long runs. And at first, I listened to marketing and business podcasts because there really weren't that many podcasts out there. And it wasn't until I began producing a podcast of my own in 2007 that I realized there was a running community already out there, and it was growing around that form. And I found Steve with Fidipidations and Nigel with Running from the Reaper and Nick and Dan with Four Feet Running and all those other early shows. And I could casually listen to some discussion of smart folks around some business topic 
and it would kick electrons loose in my wetware, spawning interesting connections and thoughts that I could bring into my own life and work and practice. I would lose myself in a run thinking deep thoughts and their connections to life. I used the audio as seed for spinning patterns into my universe. But those early podcasts were different. The big media houses and the professional performers hadn't figured podcasting out yet. It was a fringe community. It was just people talking with no agendas, and that made it rather interesting. Over the last five years, podcasting has gone mainstream, and the shows are are not so much a creative burst from an odd community member. They're more structured, and they are usually after something, and they're a form of big media now, another channel to get your attention and to get into your wallet. Like every other mom-and-pop industry, the process of aggregation and capitalization has taken root, but I digress. This is why it's important to this conversation. Over the last few years, my subscribe-to podcast list has burgeoned to include many, many shows about many, many topics, and I find that I can't get to all of them. And it's a paradox of choice. It's the same guilt I used to feel when the magazines I had subscribed to would pile up in the corner unread. And somewhere along the line, the listening to podcasts on my long runs became less of a choice and more of a habit. And I found I could get more audio content into my runs by laying them in at 1.5 or 2 times playback speed. And I went from sampling the audio to provoke thought to rote consumption of information. I would not go out on a run unless I could knock off a couple podcasts in the process. And I was multitasking. And somewhere in this process, I forgot the essence of the run. Listening and running became another chore. The run was not a run alone, but a vehicle to a task that could be checked off the list of a successful day. And I still remember why I started running. I remember the peaceful sob of being out in the woods or on the road and having my mind drop into the zone, the runner's high, when it feels more like flying than exercise. And I remember how the creativity would jump from that sweat-oiled mind. Whole stories fully fleshed would cascade into view and cause me to laugh at how perfect they were. Somehow I had lessened my running from meditations to surrogate classroom training sessions. Running and consuming also makes me less aware of my surroundings. It isolates me from the energy of the trails and the trees and the ancient rocks that were my partners in these adventures, and it blunts the awareness of beauty, and it blinds you to your inner self. So, (laughs) so... One of my latest 30-day projects has been to run naked. See, we came all the way back to running naked. With fewer things to carry with me, I can run free, or at least freer. What I have found, or I guess reacquired, is the emptiness of my own mind. When you run with no input, it creates space for thoughts to germinate and flourish. It creates open ground 
that can be seeded with thoughts and watered with sweet sweat. Creating this empty space is a form of meditation. You allow your mind to wander, but you put yourself in the now. You become aware of your surrounding, and you let them soak into the empty space. You become aware of your body. You notice your pace and form, and especially your breathing. It allows you to be present and synergize the mind-body connection. And I have found I fall down less when I'm running naked. You may say that this is a waste of valuable time. That you'd be bored without distraction. But, and this is probably an ability I have developed in my long life, you are not wasting time. You are practicing. You are practicing being present with your mind and your body in your environment. With this practice, you gain a powerful skill set for your running. Have you ever had someone tell you to, quote, listen to your body? That's what we're talking about. You are developing a valuable skill that will pay off in future runs or races. The ability to interface with your machine to understand what it is telling you and to control how it reacts. When you get good at this practice, you can use the empty space in your mind to think about problems or challenges. What you do is simply notice that quiet mind and bring a topic into it, to the front. And now you allow that subject to roll around in your mind and you let your mind in flow state access the resources that a switched-on, stressed-out working mind typically doesn't have access to. The creative juices flow when I'm in this practice state. Entire paragraphs jump directly into print, fully formed, in my mind's eye. Amazing chunks of insight cascade to fill the open space. Extremely funny and odd thoughts jump out of the mental water like fishes to be caught in my boat. It took a few long outings in the trails to find my open space again to reconnect the mind and the body, and it has been invigorating, a form of thoughtful meditation, as opposed to just another distracted consumption routine. So give running naked a try, especially if you are of the generation that grew up within the noise and have never experienced it. You owe it to yourself to find this quiet space. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Well, my friends, you may have woken up unable to ever run again, but you have made it to the end of episode 4-353 of the Run Run Live podcast. So that's something. How about that? I held off writing this outro until today, the Friday after Thanksgiving, so I could let you know how my Thanksgiving 5K went, and it went well. So I'll give you the 300-word race report. This race starts at 8 a.m., so I made sure to set the expectation with Teresa, who was running it with me, that we were leaving the house at 7 a.m., so I could get a nice long warm-up in before the start. So I got up early and rubbed some Flexol into my leg muscles to wake them up and get some blood flowing. I had some coffee and a couple of bites of oatmeal, and we got out of the house on time. The weather... Uh, was forecasted for freezing rain, but it held off until after the race. It was below freezing, maybe eh, 28 degrees or so. There was a skim of ice on the ponds as we drove over, and I put on full tights and a long sleeve tech shirt with my club singlet over it 
I had a pair of thin running gloves and that multicolored knit hat my mom made for me. In uh, such a short race, I really didn't want to be cold. So we checked in and I headed out to run the course as a warm-up. And I'm so glad I took the time to warm up. I ran about two and a half miles of the course in just over 21 minutes. And I managed to get my heart rate to come down, but my hands never warmed up. I never broke a sweat. I probably should have done some strides, but by the time I got back to the starting line, I had missed my club's group photo and the race was about to start. But I got a nice long warm-up in, and I ran the course ahead of time, which is always good to see, you know, the condition of the course. It gives you some confidence when you're out racing. And there's a lot of kids in this race, and a lot of rookie runners, a lot of families, and they tend to take off like bottle rockets at the beginning, and you have to be careful not to get tripped or get sucked out too fast. That first mile felt so strange and unnatural. I have not done any speed work or racing like that. And I was trying to find a form and a pace that didn't feel totally alien. I was with a bunch of folks I knew from my club, but there's no way I was going to talk to them. It was all I could do to get oxygen in. So I looked at my time from last year, and I ran an average pace of 704s or so. So I set my A goal to break seven-minute miles, and my B goal not to collapse two miles in, which I had a little bit of a power failure last year. And we clicked by the first mile mark. I looked at my watch. It was 6.36 pace, which was a pleasant surprise. And I had managed to find my form by that point, and I wasn't focused on effort or pace, just on having good upright form, keeping my hips forward, turning my legs over, and working the tangents. Sounds familiar, right? <laughs> Isn't this every race report? And the, this course is is pretty flat, especially in the first couple miles, but it does a bunch of zigzagging around the neighborhoods in, in the second mile. So it helps to know the course or to have run it 20 minutes before the race. And uh, with the first first mile being so fast, I just it took a lot of pressure off and I just relaxed and worked my form. And I knew last year that I had faded in the last mile, so I wanted to make sure I held back a little bit or held back enough. And there were a couple little kids running near me, like eight or nine years old, really little kids. And it's great to see the next generation out there, but it's like they haven't learned pace awareness or, or spatial awareness yet. And... It was, you know, a bit like when you're trying to cook in the kitchen and the dog is underfoot. Uh, you just got to be careful not to kill anybody with them zigzagging all around your legs. And I was uh, just behind some dude running with a full-on pumpkin pie hat, more like a headdress. And he, he got a lot of attention from the volunteers and was a good landmark for me to follow. I passed the two-mile mark and misread my watch. I thought it said 6.37, which was surprising, but it actually said 6.47. But either way, I knew I was ahead of my goal pace, and I was going into that last last mile with some time in the bank. And right after the two-mile mark, the course turns up and over a railroad bridge, so it's sort of a short, steep little hill um, that you have to do more than a 90-degree turn into. And then it goes back through the center of town, and then there's one more small hill, and then the downhill into the finish. So it's it's got some elevation change in the in the last mile. And those little hills were where I faded last year. My legs sort of went on me, but with my thorough warm up, I was able to push through there without the leg fatigue, and I just held my form and focused on my turnover, and I pushed through the finish strong. And my watch had me running a 6:44 average pace. 
but the race clocked me at 651s, and I ended up 61st out of 587 runners with a 21-16 finish, and I was 5th out of 72 guys in my age group. So yeah, I had a good morning. Got to talk to some old friends, made room for some turkey. Good day all around. So next week, I'm running the Mill Cities Relay, and I'm dragging Teresa along for that too. It's an eight-leg invitational that all the local running clubs from We Do This, it runs from Nashua, New Hampshire, down the Merrimack River to Lawrence, Massachusetts, and my club usually fields a bunch of teams. It's sort of our yearly event. And then after that, you're all invited to come up and join me for the fourth annual Groton Marathon and Half Marathon on New Year's Eve Day. So we're running on the Saturday this year because the holidays are weird. And we're going to have actual timing this year, and I have at least three other people going the distance with me. And we usually get 20-ish people to show up to run some of it with us. So there's a half marathon flavor as well. So there you go. I have been doggedly reading through Thoreau's Cape Cod in snatches as part of my morning routine this last couple weeks, and I find it quite enjoyable. I know the places that he's talking about. I have been to them. And even though he is tramping around the Outer Cape in the late 1850s, the towns are all the same, and the flora and the fauna, they're the same, and the sand and the sea are the same, and I can picture it quite well as I read. And I'm nearing the end of my trip through this book, this small but dense book, and Mr. Thoreau is nearing the end of his trip as well. And the portion I'm reading this week is traveling through Truro, past Highland Light, and up Race Point, around to Provincetown. And one morning he is watching the Mackerel Fleet sail out to the fishing grounds from Provincetown. And he sees hundreds of boats under sail coming in the morning and then arriving back in the evening. And he compares fishing in the ponds of Concord to the fishing these men do. In Concord, they fish as a form of relaxation or sport. And he seems to infer that these men and boys of Provincetown get to play at fishing all day, and it seems like quite a life. And then the next day, there's a strong nor'easter gale. And Thoreau and his companion march out of province into the wind, across the desert, as he calls it, to the Atlantic shore. And they see the breakers being driven onto the banks at high tide and see the few ships that there are struggling out in the sea to get back to the port. Quote, As we stood looking on this scene, we were gradually convinced that fishing here and in a pond were not, in all respects, the same. And he who waits for fair weather and calm sea may never see the glancing skin of a mackerel and get no nearer to a cod than the wooden emblem in the state house. And this resonated with me on a fine morning in November with the first dust of snow on the ground. Are you waiting for calm seas? Are you waiting for fair weather? Because the fish aren't going to wait for you. You've got to get out in your small boats and be brave. You have to go out into the stormy world and wrest your destiny from the gaping mouth of fate. And I will see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry.
walking around the house, clickety-clack with your toenails, dog. Trying to record over here. This is serious business. I mean, serious, serious, highfalutin business, this recording stuff. All right, let me find my place here. <clears throat> heart rate training. Wait, I'll, I'll give you the sound of my heart. Hear that? Yeah, that's my heart. 